Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's leaders are getting stuck at an ever-increasing rate as they reach outside their core capabilities in search of growth. After experiencing this himself and observing countless other CEOs facing a similar battle, our guest decided to do something about it. He leveraged his extensive leadership experience to develop a unique perspective around why this phenomenon keeps happening and what leaders can do to break free. His book guides readers through examples of some of the most common challenges preventing progress and teaches them how to intentionally tap into the vast knowledge and experience of others. We welcome author of Unstuck, How to Activate and Unlock the Wisdom of Others, Craig Lamasters. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aiden. And what a great summary of the of the work we're into. So I appreciate that. It's awesome. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So you start out by saying that it's difficult to describe the rate of change without sounding cliche. But, and I quote you here, you say, for most of human history on this planet, change has consistently been gradual. Only in the most recent three decades of civilization has change accelerated so rapidly that it poses a formidable challenge to the acquisition of timely knowledge let alone accumulating the depth and range of knowledge needed to get ahead of change. And the reason I share this, exactly the situation you found yourself in as CEO in an evolving insuring industry where your core product was under attack and customer expectations were rising. That's where it all started for me. And this this book and our body of work, Aiden, is super personal because I had the privilege to run a big company, um, a mid-cap public company for many years, actually uh, 11 years as the CEO, or as I like to say for public company people, 44 quarters of of that job, um, which seems to be our headset around that. But yeah, that's, that's why it's super personal for me because as a leader um, – over that period of time, the the rate of change, particularly around technology and all this thing, we we sort of bucket into digital transformation and other cool terms. Um, it was pretty daunting. Uh, I didn't grow up in that era, so it was incredibly daunting to me, and I just became super perplexed of you know the very people who are supposed to be making decisions, making choices about the future of the organization, and did we really, really have the knowledge and experience to do that? So yeah, it was. Really really a big part of my own personal journey. And you had morphed the business, as you call it, but a new curveball was thrown your way and hundreds of millions of revenue was wiped out and you had to morph again. And this is a key situation many leaders find themselves in and you needed to change yet again. The question was changing to what and where would you start? And this is where you and many business leaders get stuck. I think that's right. And then the vision, I'm a big visual learner and kind of visual person and leader really in my own right, because I just, I just like pictures. But the visual that I've actually used for that is this idea of a circle of our core business. And, you know, and I consider that every company has or any organization has and should have just a great core, this thing that they just do extremely well. And, and what I found was, you know, we talk a lot, the fancy consulting terms are a adjacencies and I call it new stuff that, that actually this morphing is we have to continually find new stuff to go do and and it was pretty simple for me that over time I realized that the bigger the step was to that new stuff 
the harder it was. And and that's where we started fooling around with this whole wisdom-based learning. And and I define wisdom as unique intersection of knowledge and experience, but but that that plummeted. It, it literally plummeted once I got a little farther away from the core business. And that really bothered me because, and again, everyone has their story of their business model. Ours was was pretty daunting at that time. I mean, we were selling extended warranties through big box retailers. And at that time, I mean, you, every day you open the newspaper and there's another big box retailer, particularly in the U.S., going bankrupt. I mean, Circuit City was one of our larger clients. And it's pretty hard as a leader when you look up and then literally overnight, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue just went away. And I'm like, wow, we got to go do something different, which is what we should all do. But that different, the new stuff is where I found we got stuck. And we got stuck a lot doing that. So before we get into it, so many leaders listen to this show and will identify with just a few of the descriptions you share from leaders in recent years of what it feels to be stuck. And I'm going to quote a few of them here. You said, this is the type of answer you hear. It feels like my senior leadership team doesn't want to succeed. I mean, of course, I know that's not true. That's one of them. It feels like I'm trying to walk in ankle deep mud. I pull one foot out of the muck and another one slides even deeper. Then. I managed to pull that one free, and the first one is now up to my knee. And then the final one is, at the very moment we're trying to summon the collective energy to bust into this new tough market, I'm drowning in a million emails. I just feel like locking my door and curling up in a corner. And the, the reason I share these, Craig, is oftentimes we think of leaders as these superhero, not really people, but they're people, and they're struggling, and with the rate of change being so rapid, they're struggling more than ever before. That is the point exactly, Aiden. I think uh, I think we're struggling, and it's harder, and it gets harder than before. And again, this rate of change, and it's well documented. It's not me or my book that has documented that. There's others that are much more eloquent in the detail around it. So it is a fact. The rate of change has increased, um, and so I what I always focus on: well, what is the implication for the leader? And you said it very well. I mean, it's 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 super daunting, and and quite frankly, I think one of the challenges with leaders and it was for me is just that recognition of it. I mean, the reality is, I mean, and that's why that 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 statement, that third statement you met, mentioned, that really was me. I mean, I went out and painted a beautiful, um, or hopefully it was, beautiful description of our digital future. I mean, my job was to, you know, again, I was optimistic. I believe we can do it. But I was curled up in the fetal position sucking my thumb because how we were going to go do it was super daunting to me. And and probably one of my favorites of those three is this, and maybe because I live in the South in the U.S. and have a lot of mud, I guess, because that one really resonated with me because I, I also don't want people to misinterpret. When I talk about being stuck and then obviously unstuck, stuck doesn't mean we're not trying. I don't see that at all, both in my own organization and now doing the work I am across tons of industries and leaders all over the world. I, I just don't see that, Aiden. I think people generally working super hard at this stuff. But that visual was really important to me because it was me. We just weren't moving fast enough. I mean, demands on speed and earnings. And again, we were a public company, which meant you can have a great quarter. And the day after the quarter, the way I always looked at it is we had 11 weeks and six days to get ready for the next quarterly earnings. 
So that speed is what I was trying to get across is like, ah, we're trying. It just feels like we pop one foot out of the mud and now I'm knee deep with the other leg. But it has resonated as I tell some of these stories and I appreciate you mentioning it because it's resonated. It wasn't just me, which I guess made me feel better. I often think that it's not a formula. It's a mindset. It's a way of working. It's an organizational mindset that needs to transmute the entire organization. But one of the huge problems, and you mentioned here the quarterly earnings and those 44 quarters, was it 44 you said? 44 quarters, 11 years, man. (laughs) So the 44 quarters. And one of the huge problems with this and, and in life is that we ignore the reality of the complex living, evolving ecosystems in which we operate. And things don't happen in a linear line. What you call it is the expectation line. Right. Yeah, I just draw, I started drawing this wacky picture, just a simple one-dimensional graph, really, of time and money. And our money, to me, was earnings per share, which is what you could judge by in a public company. And, and the line is a straight line. It's perfectly linear, and it's always going up. And, and it's funny, as I've done this, I've probably done it at least hundreds of times the last three years for leaders or groups of leaders. And it's funny, the reaction I started getting is it was like, it was like a, um, a sigh of relief. And, and I ask people why. It's like, oh, I get it that it resonates, that our job is really very simple. As long as we produce ever linear, always going up, perfectly perfect earnings growth, then there's no issue. <laughs> but it's ridiculous, right? I mean, what, what, what organization ever has done that? And, and yet, I think people tend to agree with me that is, that is the expectation line. And, and so I just believe by definition, um, if that's what we're up against, because I think it is, then we all have to agree um, it's a pretty high bar. And number one, number two, it's not going to work out that way. So the question I always had as a leader was then what, what's our response if we're below the line, particularly for an extended period of time or way below the line, which does happen, what do we do about it? I mean, that to me became the most relevant question. Yeah. And I wanted to highlight here a couple of things you say that are so relevant for both individuals and the individuals in organizations, because if you're a CEO, what got you that role amongst other skills? was your innovative mindset, was your use of innovation, was the way you thought. And what made your business successful was your innovation excellence. And then one day, like recently has happened to us all, the market shifts and you become a lumbering Goliath up against a nimble David or else the market entirely shifts and your customers want different things. Yeah, I think that's right, Aiden. And, and, and I always tell people that, you know, it's not that we don't get on that expectation line for a while. And boy, it's fun when we're there. I mean, if you've particularly ever participated in, you know, earnings calls and things to public, I mean, it's, it's awesome. And it's great fun until you're not. <laughs> and then we're not. And everything changes overnight, particularly if it's fairly dramatic. And it's interesting, the last month or so, as we're hopefully now on the backside of the whole, you know, COVID and global pandemic stuff, 
it's been really interesting, my conversations last month with clients and leaders, again, all over the world that, you know, this most people are stuck. I mean, there's a few exceptions, but most are stuck. If you think about that expectation line, there's only a few exceptions of people that are even approaching it, at least for a period of time. Hopefully, it won't be extended. But I think it's resonated with a lot of people <laughs> the last the last month because, quite frankly, it's been pretty good. I mean, if you look at the last, you know, 10 years, roughly, we've, we've had a pretty good, and, and in most countries, right? I mean, it's been a pretty good global uptick for an extended period of time. But this, this is really a game changer. So I think the message has really resonated with folks. And it's hard. It, 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 it's super hard when we're stuck. And it's a very lonely feeling. I think for me personally, why I wanted to share this body of work quite candidly was because I sat in that chair so long and it just feels awful when you're really stuck and you look at that expectation line and you're looking back up where you need to be. You know you have to do some things differently and you don't really know how. You might even know what they are and most people do, but boy, it's, it's, it's just a lonely place to be. So I was hoping we could bring a little bit of the, you know, how we go do that to the equation. That's one of the reasons the book spoke to me. I know a lot of CEOs and you know, when I meet them, it, it's lonely. It's yeah. lonely at the top because you have nobody to talk to. And then if you do, if you're in a global organization and you do have some confidence, you don't know fully, can you trust them? Because maybe they're going back and kind of, going, you know, Craig's lost it, man. He's getting weak, you know, and then you, you don't know who to trust. And it's a very, very lonely place. And then you don't want to bring it home because then maybe your family start going, All right. right, you're bringing work home and you, you shouldn't have taken this job. So you don't know who the heck to talk to. Right. What motivates me is is having sat in that chair and realizing um, over an extended period of time just how hard it is. Because I don't think, well, I'm sure of this, that the average employee or associate in an organization understands that. And I know external people don't. And it's a lot of time it's the owners of the company, whether it's shareholders or investors or whatever. And it's very hard to communicate that. You know, when you're in those jobs, as you said, you can't run around with your hair on fire and yelling, this is super hard. I don't really know what to do here. That's just not going to help anybody and certainly going to destroy the confidence of the organization. So we try to use some examples and some contrasts and some things. But more importantly, it's just very personal to me because I do appreciate how hard it is. And, you know, it's funny, I can tell in the first five minutes with leaders now, having done this for a couple of years, it's been so much fun to get outside of my industry that I grew up in and talk to leaders and kind of across all industries. And usually within five minutes, particularly if it's a face-to-face meeting, I know if they're stuck or not. And the only reason I know is because that look on their face was my luck. Coming back for a moment to your own experience with Assurant, you tell us the warts and all stories of why the business did not adapt. I thought this would be so helpful to share. It kind of gets in a circle of stuck idea, but um, we can chat about the, but yeah, my own organization was, it was odd because it was such a high performing 
group of people. And this is when I got fascinated with there must be another answer to why we were stuck. But particularly as we were bumping up, and this was all about digital transformation for my own organization, but it was it was actually really perplexing to me because we had morphed the company within the core and a little bit outside of the core. We went from um, things like credit insurance to service contracts, but it was really the core of our, it was the same core, basically, uh, just doing a few different things. Um, so when I started to bump into these these adjacencies or new stuff that was a little further out from that, for me, it was digital, it was really two big ones, digital transformation in China. Uh, it became really, really hard. And that's when, <laughs> that's when it be- the job itself became super daunting to me. I'm grateful that it wasn't the first few years, quite frankly, that I was in the job because I don't think I would have been prepared um, to, to even remotely have the peripheral vision to go find other paths, which is what we did. But that's when it started for me. Digital and China were the big, uh, call them the big rut row moments in leadership where we bumped up against some stuff that was, it was hard, but it was hard in a very different way. You mentioned the circle of stuck and, and we shared earlier on the expectation line, but way worse than that is the circle of stuck. <laughs> I think so. I mean, this is, this is again, what is sort of resonated and I have some fun with when I uh, get a chance to speak with leaders and only because it's, it's my story and I just tell it and if it resonates, it does. And so far it really has, because I think we all recognize it when we're in that, we're in that process that we sort of create ourselves of how do we get unstuck just to use my term. Um, the question I always ask people is what's the first thing we do? And I think universally, we all do it, which is probably the right first step. I don't know. But we have a meeting. And that's pretty, it sounds benign. It's pretty straightforward. We have a meeting. Uh, We talk about like, you know, maybe why are we stuck? How do we get unstuck? Uh, What's new? And after the meeting, what we tend to do is this phenomena really of sort of um, summarizing the meeting and sending, we, we sent an email with lots of people on it. And uh, then we started this thing years ago, this, you know, carbon copy. A lot of people don't even know what CC means anymore, but we start copying people. Um, and then what I found in my organization was we tended to really not move forward with a lot, but we would definitely have a second meeting. And so you picture this circle start to develop and then we would have a third meeting and a fourth meeting. And then a real phenomenon happens is it starts to swell this list of email participants and CC participants to the point to where my favorite story on my record recently was a CEO, as I'm telling this story, interrupted me and said, I think I got a record. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I just saw an email with 347 CCs on it. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's a big number. What's even more remarkable is you counted them. And he goes, yeah, I got fascinated with this. It's like, <laughs> how is this happening in my company? So the story goes on. And then we, I, I call it buzzword salad. We, we've had this phenomena where we start adding a lot of business words to it. I think it makes us feel better. And then we, we bump up to sort of the end of the internal, um, what I would call the internal journey. Um, and we realize we're not really making progress. So then we usually bring in some outside firms to do some ideation, some think tank work, some 
design thinking. And again, I nothing wrong with that. I think some of those firms are super helpful. The challenge is though, we don't still tend to move forward. And then what I would do after that part of the process, so about three quarters away around the circle, that's when we would get frustrated and bring in the big guns, right? We'd go hire the expensive big three or four consulting firms. Um, and, you know, we ended up spending millions of dollars a year, particularly when we were stuck on hard stuff with these consulting firms. Lots of knowledge. I mean, good stuff, lots of data. But if you picture now at the top of the circle, we'd end up back there and we'd be back in a meeting, usually about a year later. It was kind of the average. And we were still stuck. And, you know, again, I've told that story probably hundreds of times, Aiden, and just it, it, I think it resonated with people because it's my story, but it became other people's story. <laughs> and again, I don't know if it's your story, if you've ever seen it, but um, uh, it's certainly mine. And you quoted at this stage in the book, Benjamin Franklin, who said, never confuse motion with action. And this is what happens. You have, you do these brainstorming meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody thinks, yeah, we're making progress, but you really haven't. All you've done is added more buzzwords. As you say, the buzzword salad gets bigger and less tasty. <laughs> You're short a few dollars out to the consultants as well. But I wanted to bring it back a step before this even happens, because many of the listeners of this show are change makers or entrepreneurs within organizations. And it was interesting to hear your point of view, because I was one of the recipients of the email from you in organizations. And you say, like most transformation projects, they start with small pockets of change. And I pulled a quote that I'm sure so many business leaders experienced. And you said, as we dug down into the grassroots of our company, we discovered lots of people who were working on the same problem. And as you read their emails, you could tell they were bright folks, but you could feel in your gut that they were not united to, on the bigger existential problem you were facing. There certainly wasn't an overarching digital vision or strategy for the enterprise. And then you realized, oops, that's my job. <laughs> and, right. and it really hit home for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's just, uh, I probably should have used stronger words because that's just real leadership failure because I guess it was encouraging on one hand. I know it was. We went out and literally surveyed. I mean, we were in 20 countries and lots of really smart people and hardworking people. And we found all these just pockets of people working. This is related to our whole digital transformation and doing some wonderful work. But, but when my team came back and said, look, here's the number of people working on this stuff. Here's the money we're spending. Here's this, there's that. And I'm like, that's awesome. But what are they working on? Like, what is, I call it A to B. What, what is the destination that they're headed towards? And everybody's looking at their shoelaces. And I realized why, because they're basically should have been looking at me and going, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was my failure. I mean, you know, I realized it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like a lot of hard work, but you know, there's no point B here. That's my job. We need to have the destination super clearly defined and then actually bring the an organized, thoughtful approach to all of this. And it's interesting, Aiden, I've had this conversation with a number of companies that we work for, and they're, they're always intrigued about how to start all this. And, and there's several ways you can do it. One of them is, why don't you go put on one piece of paper what you're already doing? Let's take a look at point A. Where are you today? It's amazing how many other people are shocked when they do that. This is why 
I really enjoyed the book because it's so honest and you spoke from scar tissue here. This isn't just a consultant or some thought leader. It's actually what you went through. And you shared at this stage a fairly common trick senior leaders learn, thinking they're winnowing down the many options into a concise list and kind of go, let's let's identify the top 10 here. And this is what happens. This is what really happens. And I loved your definition of leadership here. You said, not that the long list of leadership responsibilities aren't important, they are, but you believe the ability to make timely and successful choices defines the quality of leadership. Yeah, and I know there's you know so much written and a whole bunch of people smarter than me that have different or maybe even better definitions, but... As you said, and actually, I'm going to plagiarize your your scar tissue comment. I like that a lot. <laughs> that's, that's really that's what, it, what it is. <laughs> but yeah, when I look at my scar tissue, that that's the definition that I built really all this work around is just this this simple idea that of the hundreds of things we need to do as leaders, I would go as far as to say, and I believe it more than ever now that making choices and then obviously the best most timely choices is so far above everything else and, and and again that example you just used is how i got to this definition quite candidly i mean this whole idea that all these people are running around all over the world doing all this cool work and I, and yet i hadn't made any choices they did they did really i mean i was the one that was supposed to make a choice of what to be what the destination was and and again it really changed the way i thought about my role about leadership and literally started to build this little body of work around that and and so to me it was just became a lot easier to solve for if you buy into that definition then how do we help people and we've talked about it for decades right i mean we've used the fancy word agile leaders these superhuman you know fast moving individuals that can make these amazing decisions is how it was usually described and so I used to ask people, my head of HR, I asked her many times, I'm like, well, where are all those people? <laughs> I mean, we've been talking about this for two decades. And that's when it hit me that that definition of leadership was the most important is how can we help leaders do that if we buy into it? And that's what drove really all this work and, and really drove me leaving public company life to go do this audio work. Speaking of that scar tissue, right, you tell us, Wisdom is the key to getting unstuck. That's what your real message is in this book. And you share a simple formula for wisdom, W equals K times E. I know there's lots of definitions of wisdom out there, uh, but for me, um, this secret sauce that helped me get unstuck, again, on the hard stuff, further away from core, not day-to-day work, was this wisdom formula. And, and the key to it really is this unique intersection of the knowledge and experience. And as I started studying it in my own company back six, seven years ago, and then the last three years doing this full-time, uh, we've been able to create some proof points around lots of different pieces of work, basically. It wasn't just mine, which I I thought maybe I was just lucky. But it's been kind of fun to really pressure test the knowledge and experience quotient. And what I found was often one exists, almost always one exists. So we're working and go back to that circle of stuck. So why doesn't the internal thing work? I mean, you know, and, and that's what frustrated me. We had always worked out of problems. We'd had a bad quarter. We'd have a good quarter. But when we were really stuck, and again, trying to do China and trying to do digital, I got frustrated. Why doesn't that internal process work? And all of a sudden, I realized that 
both the knowledge and the experience for those topics, not for everything, but just those topics had plummeted. And we've been able to sort of look at this across a bunch of industries and bunch of different stuck topics. And I encourage people, again, just to do that exercise. If you're stuck on something really hard, be really candid about you and your team's level of knowledge and experience on both of those topics. That's what I found also on the traditional consulting aid, which again, I like, I think it's super helpful. But what I found was they overwhelmed us with knowledge on a topic data, awesome stuff, but there was no experience then or vice versa. We can find people that may have experienced something, but really didn't have any knowledge to back it up. And as we found people that had both, that ended up being the secret sauce. So yeah, everything you see in here is really built on the chassis of that little wisdom formula. And the problem with the people in the organization is not that they're not very, very good at their jobs, but their knowledge and experience are limited to the core business itself. And most companies understand this. So they tend to pair strategizing with some internal research and development capabilities, which means they're still looking inside. And then on the flip side, as you said, you do value consultants. But the difference in your approach is the wisdom to look for what you call not experts, but operators. And these are people who have scar tissue have gone through it themselves. That's all it is. And I just want to find people that have gone before us, gone before me, and done the very thing that I'm trying to go do. But it's very granular. A lot of people misunderstand this, that when I talk about wisdom, that there's these uh, like little Yoda people, you know, very just all-knowing, all-wise people sitting around. And and it's not that. <laughs> I, I have a simple hypothesis. And again, I think we've proved it over the last three years, is that everybody Literally everybody has a bucket of wisdom, and I call them swim lanes. If you picture a pool and like competitive swimming with the lanes, I think everybody has wisdom in at least one swim lane, maybe more. Why that's so important is that the solutions to these stuck things are pretty complex usually. Right. So when I did digital transformation, I didn't expect to go out and find like five just wise operators that had done everything in digital. No. And that's why we break it down in this, this learning ecosystem or an ecosystem type formula. There's, there's usually three or four parts of what we're stuck on that are pretty granular, actually. And so what I want to do is go find the wise people in those granular little swim lanes of wisdom. And the fun part is. They're, they're everywhere. I mean, again, people have created wisdom and you've done it in the practice that you're in, right? I have a little wisdom of swim lane. I can't go offer knowledge and experience on a huge, broad array of things. I have a lot of opinions, but that's different. But where I have actual knowledge and experience is a pretty small swim lane. But what I found was if you put those swim lanes of wisdom together, getting unstuck back to the mud example, it just exponentially speeds it up. 
It's not the end all. It's not the only way to get unstuck. But if you want it to go quickly, I haven't found any other way that can move at the speed. It's why, it's why we trademark the simple term rapid cycle learning. I just haven't found another way to learn this stuff quickly enough to move the unstuck process along in a pretty dramatic fashion. We'll come back to how to engage those operators. Because you do that brilliantly in the book and you tell us how to do that. But so far we've discussed being stuck and the wisdom formula. But let's do as you do in the book and describe the four simple steps using the formula to get unstuck. And the first step you talk about here is getting humble. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just the number one reason that this type of methodology, and if you think about using other people's wisdom, and I get asked this a lot, um, especially now that we've had some some fun with this and just a lot of, of success, I guess you would call it. We have a lot of unstuck, fun examples, not just my own story now. So I get asked that a lot. It's like, well, what's the number one criteria for somebody to get unstuck? And everybody's looking to get to the other steps, like, how do you do it? And I said, the, the first criteria is, is this thing called humility. And it just none of this works if we don't have a pretty high, what I would call humility quotient. I mean, a pretty high degree of humility. And again, there's lots of definitions for humility, but the ones that I like the most coalesce around, you know, your willingness to listen to others. And do you really have that or not? But without that, Aiden, I mean, none of this work makes sense. None of it is helpful. But when you do have a pretty high humility or you're willing to try some new humility, it's shocking how fast people learn from wise people that have gone before us. But it does start with humility, has to. One of the problems, though, with humility, like we, again, you're so honest in this book and you're so humble in the book. And you talk about the personal challenges you go through. And many, many leaders see humility as being equated with lowliness or meekness or weakness or even unworthiness. Even though one of the greatest business books of our generation, Jim Collins' Good to Great, which was the first business book I read actually when I was retiring from rugby, he says, Humility is the key factor to success of those businesses he studied. Couldn't agree more and just reference a bunch of his work and my little chapter on humility because I think it's I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I think he was one of the first that was brave enough to even bring it up quite candidly. Because <laughs> for whatever reason, and I don't I mean, again, I'm not a psychologist, don't pretend to be. That's not my swim lane of wisdom. So I don't even know how we got where we where we where we have, which is again, this underlying theme that for some reason being humble may show weakness. It may show lack of clarity and all these things that have absolutely nothing to do with it. So I couldn't agree more. I love Collins' work on it. And I will tell you one quick antidote here, Aiden, that the good news is, I mean, again, I'm talking hundreds of, of leaders, typically C-suite conversations the last three, three years in this topic. Most are a whole bunch more humble than I would have even suspected. 
And that's been really encouraging to me. This has not been as big a challenge as I thought it would going into it. Not to say there's not the tail on any normal distribution, right? I mean, there's been some that just don't need help on anything. But I would say the large majority of leaders that I've shared this topic with have been shockingly humble about it and shockingly intrigued by the concept and, quite frankly, willing to try it. So I found that just super encouraging. And then the last thing I'd say, I think when we all go through a global pandemic, which most of us have never done before, and none of us have ever been in a scenario, because I don't think it's ever happened, where we literally shut off the global economy for a period of time. If this doesn't drive some humility, then I don't know what can. It's pretty dramatic right now. I think it's encouraging because I think it's, it's just such an important topic. And often humility comes from sometimes getting a bit of a kick in the ass where you get put back in your place. But I loved a quote you shared here by Robert Hogan. And this spoke volumes, I thought, because it's so important in the business world to see beyond this idea of the Gordon Gecko kind of Wall Street leader, because that's been implanted in so many people's minds as that's what a successful business person looks like. And even gender equality in the business world is only starting to happen. And you said here, and I love this quote, organizations often overlook humble employees for leadership positions in favor of those who are charismatic. Charismatic people are charming and inspirational, but many turn out to be narcissistic, arrogant, and potentially exploitative. In contrast, humble leaders empower followers and promote team learning. And the reason I felt that quote is so strong is you mentioned there about all those leaders you met and they were surprisingly humble, which is great to hear. But oftentimes that doesn't pervade an organization. It doesn't, it's not across the organization. And that is key to a successful business because the leader can't do everything by themselves. No, they can't do everything. And and I tell you, we, we've just been very fortunate to, to work with some just amazing companies across almost all industries now, all different size. And it's fun. And you can see it immediately when we work with a humble leader who has then cascaded that throughout the organization um, and largely from who they've surrounded themselves with. But even if some weren't. You can tell when the culture of the organization is such as this is how we're going to behave. And again, for my little world, where I see it is, do they really have an aptitude and a desire and a thirst to learn from other people? And it's shocking the difference. Uh, but I couldn't agree more. And certainly Robert Hogan is, is one of those psychologists that I mentioned that know a whole bunch about this topic that I don't pretend to, but I really lean on a lot of that body of work and that research around it. And I couldn't agree more. And, and quite candidly, Aiden, I, I think this topic is gaining traction. I see far fewer of the Gordon Gecko stereotypes, which is a great callback, by the way. That's a, it's a, it's a perfect example on an extreme side. But I see far, far fewer of those and far more humble leaders that really want the organization to behave that way and realize it's a challenge. It really is. And it's great to see. And, and Hogan is the guy who kind of brought it into psychological profiling about humility scales. But I wanted to ask you then, as a leader who, of a successful business, when you were with Assurant, how did you hire or how did you detect for humility 
in those people you were hiring if you were involved in those hiring decisions? We're going to spend hours on the people side because it's it's literally my favorite topic. And I, I spend a disproportionate amount of my time building the team that I had with me for most of my tenure, certainly as CEO of Assurance Solutions. And so I spent a lot of time on it and, and a lot of time with those people and, and driving to this humility quotient, both upfront in the hiring process. And then as we cultivated leaders, um, quite candidly, um, and, and I, I talk a lot about. Uh, grit and Angela Duckworth's amazing work around grit research, which is became just fundamental to the stuff I did. But I would say, other than that topic of grit that I'm looking for in leaders, that combination of grit and humility, which is not always easy to find, uh, but it is the winning combination. Um, so for me personally, I spent a lot of time on this topic and both seeking out humble leaders and people who had a real gut level humility and then cultivating that. And quite frankly, it was an imperative for us that that's how they led their organizations, their teams. And this, again, that sort of cascading effect in, in the organization. What was your ways of doing that? So how would you uncover that? Firstly, you have to be humble yourself and ask the questions. But how did you detect what were like the watchouts for if they answered a certain way or, you know, what were the kind of encouraging signs if they answered a different way? Yeah, I mean, and again, this is a lot of people have great research on this, but, but one of it is for me, it was the I word, right? I mean, you can tell almost immediately with leaders and, and others, not just in, in a corporate environment, but really any organization. Is it the I word? And even worse, do they refer to themselves in the third person? Or is their instinct, is their gut instinct to talk about the teams that they've built, the people that they've helped be successful that have actually gone on to do things more important than they have? have. It's shocking, Aiden, and you said something very important to me. You do have to have the ability to ask the questions, which I actually enjoy doing. And I want to understand somebody's perspective. I mean, everybody asks, if you think about the typical interview scenario or whatever process you use, we get to that, right? Which is, you know, tell me about your successes and failures and all this stuff. But what I really wanted to understand is, is how did that happen? Like, what was the actual process? You know, who actually did all this? You know, how did you think about about those people that were involved how did you find them how did you cultivate them and and it's 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 fun i mean within minutes you can usually tell how somebody think do they have a gut level humility about all of this Right. And, and it's not that hard to screen people with that. And then if and you've been through this, I mean, when we bring people into the organization, some people are great interviewers and we miss stuff and we didn't get it right. What I found, though, in our organization, because it is the way we started to behave over time as an organization, they stood out very quickly. Now, you could argue if people tell on them, <laughs> well, maybe so, but in a very respectful way, those became the oddballs in the organization. So it was not that hard over a period of time to make that ingrained part of the culture. And then it fed off of it. I mean, the, the delight that I see now and even companies that we work with is once that aha goes off and this becomes part, truly part of the gut level culture, the heart level of the company, the acceleration of their growth of whatever they're trying to do tends to go through the roof in a lot of companies for the first time. That's identifying people for your own organization. But we mentioned earlier on those 
operators, those people who have been through it before, have gained the scar tissue and done it successfully or not, and learning from them. And one of the key components to the book is identifying them and knowing what to look for. I'd love if you shared this next. And that's part of our business model that we've created over three years is pretty good secret sauce on how to find really humble, wise people that have a thirst to share their wisdom. Because you think about it, it's kind of humility going the other way. A lot of people have it and it's like it's mine and you, you know you can't have it or if you get it, you're going to pay handsomely for it. <laughs> okay, That's not how we want the conversation to go. It's funny that one. I, I, like I write a weekly column on Medium and on LinkedIn and people constantly say to me, why are you giving it all away for free? And you kind of go, well, writing it actually helps me consolidate my thinking, etc. So it's really valuable process for me every week. And you're just sharing stuff and putting it out there. I think it's a great thing and it's a very rewarding thing to do. But you talked about this. So, and this is a huge challenge. And we've done a few shows recently on bias in particular, that we need to break beyond the biases that hold us back. And you call it thinking outside the building. So once we've identified that external wisdom, how do we activate that wisdom within the organization? Number one is the destination. We got to be clear on the destination. So we spend time with people on really clarifying the destination. What I mean by the destination is not a general point of view. It's not, which we all have. I think um, we generally know where we want the organization to grow. We want to grow, you know, 10%. We want to go conquer a new country. Okay, get that. So, but what I want is to get super granular of what that looks like. And again, I'm a visual person. So I usually make people draw me pictures, like draw a picture of it. What does it look like? You know, it can be financials. It can be all this stuff, but that's, that's, that's a big deal for us is we've got to understand the destination because the destination is what draws and again because i like pictures we do everything in this ecosystem format so once we have the destination drawn that's in the middle so for me it was digital right digital transformation and we knew very specifically what that looked like um, and then you can just simply go about well what are the buckets of in my case digital transformation that you've got to be super good at simple term right what do we got to be exceptional at to be really get to that destination for us, the defined part of digital transformation, so that we just make these bubbles of what those what those things are. And again, this is something anybody can do. I mean, I, there's no patent on this. This is just a thought process. But you do a great job of painting it for people and literally painting the picture for people, which makes it very, very useful and, and a very, very useful process to go through. But one of the case studies, and I think we'll finish on this one, is the case study you shared of Best Buy in China and the executive from Xerox and so much you learned from that. And we talked before the show about how 80% of business books are supposedly never read, for example. Yeah, exactly. and, you know, and even when you do read them, you'll get way more information from an experienced executive who's gone through it, made all the mistakes, had some successes, understands regulation, etc. And you had this experience and I'd love if you shared this. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said before, the um, I was struggling on two things, digital transformation. That's when we really helped build the GXG, what is now the, the sort of this business model that we use on wisdom-based learning. The other one was China. And on China, 
um, the basically I was introduced to five people and I had a little learning ecosystem. Again, if you use that same format. So if you picture me in the middle with China, <laughs> identify, I was able to identify three or four areas of doing business in China, which was super hard. We had successfully grown in a bunch of countries and was losing money in China and just really struggling two years of it. And so I had three or four buckets of things I was very confused about that were not going well in China. And and using this methodology, I was introduced in one-hour conversations with five people that collectively had 125 years of experience and knowledge in China. And one of them I mentioned, I think, in the book, The Xerox um, – friend who had lived there, worked in China, I mean, 25 years of experience. And he was my first conversation in this facilitated format. And I got off the phone and I just, it was, I'm sure like you, Aiden, you have these inflection points as leaders that really change the way you think about things. And for me, that one conversation was an inflection point of how I thought about learning as a leader. So I'm like, how could this be? For two years, I've had the smartest consulting firms, my smartest, my team working on all this, and we're bleeding money. We're losing money in China like crazy. And I have one 50-minute conversation, and it was like this fire hose, and I learned all this stuff that was just super practical. I mean, not not no buzzwords, no nothing. It was do business with these people, talk to this regulator, not this one. It just was this massive 50-minute <laughs> wisdom transfer. And that's actually when I got hooked on the whole methodology. So you can imagine over a couple of months, I had these five people, 125 years experience. And guess what? It changed the trajectory of how we were doing business in China. And that, that that's what really got me to buy into this concept. And when I decided to leave public company life, this is why I wanted to go do this and, and share it with people. It was really from that one phone call. Speaking of learning, communication becomes so vital to learning. And this idea of having the humility to let the other person speak, to let them share their point of view, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. And I found it fascinating that when you were talking to a Fortune 500 leader, who said to you, one of the most refreshing things about these conversations that you coordinate is they actually get to stop and listen to what is being said, even if it runs counter to what they'd been thinking before, which is exactly the point. Because when it's somebody in your own organization, you kind of become defensive of that because they're seen more of a threat and you get this halo and horns effect where you know you see them as kind of the a threat to you and your status perhaps or maybe they're calling you out within the business and this is one of the values of consultants is that it's an outside voice but going a step further than consultants to somebody who's done it who has the arrows in their butt is a massive difference again it's a massive difference and i love some of the work you've been doing around this bias topic and I, I tell people all the time i mean one of the reasons this works so well is none of these people that we either put on the on the conversation on a video or in a room on an advisory board none of them have any bias their only bias is they've been vetted and screened and have agreed to go in and share their wisdom so they're not looking for jobs they're not looking to politically change the course of the company 
They don't have to be on the next earnings call. And it's just a beautiful part of the process to see this unfiltered, unbiased, super respectful wisdom dump. And then to watch the faces of, in essence, our clients, these operators that have been stuck, sit there and you can, I've been in these meetings, I can see the tension go out of their faces. Because you know what? A lot of that wisdom, they also intuitively knew they should be doing, but they just never had that person that for the last X years has done it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, we can do this too. We knew we should have shut the plant, but we didn't really know. We never done it before. And you see this tension lower. And usually within one day, we actually use a board format, which is three meetings over about four or five months, all done in a short time frame. A lot of times in the first day of the meeting, we're getting 80% of the work done. We never even have the second or the third meeting because you can see the tension come down. And to your point, now they're absorbing it. Now they're listening. These unbiased people have, have really confirmed that. And if you go back to where we started, leaders make choices, right? That's our job. I would argue that the reason we don't is a lack of confidence. And the only reason, because we tend to be pretty confident people, but within swim lanes, the reason we're not confident is we don't have wisdom on a topic. We raise the wisdom quotient and guess what happens? Reverse that picture. We become confident and now we make choices and we see that every day, every day doing this. It gives me great joy to put wisdom in the mix, see the confidence build, see the choices being made and we're unstuck. For people who want to find out where to get unstuck, where can they find you, Greg? The easiest thing is um, my personal website, craiglamasters.com, and um, you can find me there at gxg.com. Co. That's just the letters gxg.co. And, and on both of those, um, I think something you said is, is is really cool a minute ago, Aiden, is, is we do the same thing. We just share all of our work there. Lots of fun case studies, lots of methodologies. My passion in life is sharing this wisdom-based methodology. If we can help, great. But I just really want to help leaders get unstuck. So tons of information out there. And LinkedIn also. Love to, love to participate on LinkedIn. Again, share content. Love to learn from others on LinkedIn. So you can find me there well author of unstuck how to activate and unlock the wisdom of others craig lamasters thank you for joining us i appreciate it 